0: Genesis means beginning so this is the book of beginnings and we've talked about God's good creation in the first two day, first two chapters and then here in this third chapter we make a bad turn uh, in terms of the fall we talked a little bit about this last week and we want to follow up beginning in verse 8 and then reading to the end of the chapter So Genesis 3, verse 8, let's stand together as we read God's word. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat and the man said the woman whom you gave to me to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate and then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done and the woman said the serpent the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and she shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth to your children. Your desire shall be for your husband." And he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which have I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. To work the ground from which he was taken, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. miss the kindergarten and second graders through the back door. You have your Bibles open there to Genesis chapter chapter 3. Because of where we live, we understand hurricanes. And when hurricanes come ashore whether they're in North Carolina or other places, Obviously, they create a a lot of damage and there's always damage assessment, you know, whether it's from state officials or federal officials coming in and they're coming in to assess the the extent of the damage. And when they come in as this team to give their damage assessment, they're asking questions like this. How extensive was the damage? Uh, Were there any lives lost in the storm? How much is it going to cost to clean all this up? And, and then is there any way to get it back to the way it was? What, what's it going to take to get it back to the way it was? So I was just doing a little research on that. In terms of U.S. history, there's sort of a top ten list, you wouldn't be surprised, of the most expensive storms in U.S. history. Number ten, and I'm not going to give you all ten, but number ten. Uh, Francis. Most of us probably were here. Many of us were. Francis in 2004. 5.5 billion dollars. That was the assessment, damage assessment. Number three, Sandy, not too many years ago, affected North Carolina a bit. Uh, was third, two, 2012. So Francis is number ten at 5.5. Sandy, 18.7 billion. Number two, Andrew, primarily affecting Florida, 1992, 23.3 billion. And number one, not surprisingly, Katrina at $47.4 billion. So in terms of U.S. history, those are the the greatest storms. Those are the storms that cost the most damage. Uh, But in terms of human history, those storms look very small. Compared to the greatest storm that's ever happened in human history, it's affected the entire world, and it's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, in effect, what you have is this uh, beautiful little garden that God has given to Adam and Eve. And they're supposed to live in this garden and then stretch the garden across the globe. They're supposed to be the ones who begin to to move the garden outward and ever outward and begin to apply themselves to the rest of the world in their God-given talents. And in this little garden, in Genesis chapter 3, this Category 5 hurricane comes in and the destruction is, is universal and eternal. The costs are, are larger than we can possibly st- uh, even say. The result is all of humanity is lost. There just weren't some lives lost, all lives lost. In order to get things back together, it would take an act of God. So that's where we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at this text in three different ways. Consequences, curse, and Christ. The consequences, the curse, and Christ. And as I go through this, I want you to listen for yourselves, obviously, as how the Lord may be speaking to you. But after the service is over, I'm going to be up here with another elder and just invite you to come up for prayer. So, uh, of course the lord 's speaking every Sunday, but just occasionally, as you feel like I feel like i 'm led to say, "Hey, this is just a, a place that that I feel like the lord's going to intersect some people, and it may be helpful for you. It probably would be helpful for you to just have somebody to pray for you as you were thinking about how god 's speaking to you this morning. So, I want you to have that in mind as we go through these three things: consequences, curse, and christ first the the consequences. Sin entered the world, uh, as we saw last week, when we decided to promote ourselves over God. And one of the immediate consequences, and you see it very clearly here, is fear. Once we promoted ourselves over God, we wanted to be God-like. The, the first uh, emotion that entered in was, was fear. And the result of the fear was we began to promote ourselves over other people. We weren't just promoting ourselves over God. Because of fear, we were willing to promote ourselves over every, everyone else. Verse 10, you see this, I was afraid. It's, it's very important to see how fear serves As a tremendous rip current through every life here. So many of your problems, so many of my problems, so many of the world's problems are being ripped out because of fear. Fear is this massive undercurrent, and you may not be able to see it on the surface in my life, and I may not be able to see it on the surface, but if you get very far in, you'll find this rip current of fear. It's running through everyone's life, and when fear happens, it has this sort of narrowing effect on your life. Fear, anxiety, worry, it reduces life down to just a a few options, and emotionally, you feel like you're painted into a corner. And you, you may feel like you're getting choked out or you're, you're drowning. Uh, you might remember in uh, Matthew chapter 3, we talked about this this summer, the, or 13, the parable of the sower. And there's all these seeds that are sown on these different soils, and one of them is, is uh, sown on this thorny ground. And the thorns come up, and they choke out the word. And you remember what the thorns were? Worry. Anxiety. Anxiety. It has this narrowing effect. I, I thought I could trust the Word, but then I look at the world and I begin to become fearful. I become to become anxious, and I narrow down and I have to grab back hold of my own life. I can't trust God holding on to my life. And it has this feeling like we're drowning. Fear makes you feel like you're drowning. And, and if you've ever uh, taken some kind of lifeguard course or maybe you've just been a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout and you sort of just learned how to help somebody who might be drowning, you remember what they tell you, right? The person's drowning, you're swimming out to get the person, and what do they say is a warning to the person that's the lifeguard? Because this person's drowning, when you get near them, what are they going to try to do? They're going to try to drown you. Their first instinct is, I need one more breath, and if I can push you down and drown you to get one more breath, that's fine with me. And that's what fear does. It, when, when the rescuer comes, anybody who's coming to rescue will drown them so that we can have one more, one more breath, so that our lives can matter, that we can live one more second. And that's what fear does to us all. Because this uh, separation happens in Genesis 3, Adam begins to drown, and he'll do anything to save himself, and he'll sacrifice anybody. And it turns out, as we'll see, he's willing to sacrifice everybody in order to be saved, in order for him to look better He's willing for other people to die for that to happen. Look at verse 11. God asked Adam, have you eaten of the tree? Now let's go back just for a moment. You remember the very first words recorded in human history. Remember this? This was a couple weeks ago. Genesis chapter 2 It's when God brings the bride Up for the first wedding ceremony And the first recorded words are we have From Adam and he sings this love song Remember we talked about that You're bone of my bone It's not a great artistic rendition of a love song But he sings this song These are the first recorded words Of Adam The honeymoon starts He he sees his bride He sings this song to her It's a love song He just can't take his eyes off the woman And here the the next words we have recorded from human history are in Genesis chapter 3. God says, Hey, Adam, did you do something wrong? And what does Adam say? The woman. See, the honeymoon's not even over. I mean, we haven't even walked back down the aisle. And people are pointing out problems, and I'm immediately shifting the blame to say, My biggest problem is her. And even worse, God, you gave her to me. So either she's at fault or you're at fault, but there's one person here who's not at fault. That's me. Fear has this narrowing effect, and we're willing to drown everybody or anybody in order to save ourselves. Adam's in this, in this panic He's been told directly in 2.17, don't eat of this tree. And when he gets in this full panic mode, he, he begins to, to, to shift the blame. And here's a, effectively what Adam is saying. Eve, your life gets sacrificed in order for mine to get enhanced. See, sin is so deep, so destructive, so ugly, that Adam stares at his beautiful new bride and says, Your life can be damned so I can live. And worse, he looks at God and says, God, your life can be damned so I can live. You have to see the depths of human depravity. We are drowning People, And when people come to rescue us, our first response is to drown them. Not to say, thank you for coming to rescue, but I've got to be justified. I've got to look good. I've got to promote myself over you. In Genesis, from Genesis 3 onward, the human motto is, your life to enhance mine. That's how human history has marched forward. Your life to enhance my life. And so when you hear about the horrors of sex trade, sex slave trade, abortion and the selling of baby parts. Bernie Madoff's 20 million dollar ripoff scheme, people's retirement. Or if you're hearing it as an Israelite who's just experienced 400 years of racism and 400 years of slavery. And you begin to wonder, hey, what's gone wrong with the world? Genesis 3 tells you what's gone wrong with the world. All of human history, because we've promoted ourselves over the Creator, we've promoted ourselves over God, we spend the rest of our lives in fear, driven by this undercurrent, this rip current, saying, my life or your life now enhances mine. And the cost of your life to me doesn't matter just as long as I stay alive. A second consequence we have here, and I need to move through these quickly. The first is because we promoted ourselves above God, it's not hard at all for us to promote ourselves above other people. I will sacrifice anybody and everyone to justify myself so I can look good, so I can live. And then you see these broken relationships. It's just a... It's like a bomb goes off and everything's broken and the assessment, you look around, there's a broken relationship between humanity and God, verse 8. Instead of walking with God in the garden, we, we're now hiding. Adam's like, uh, acting like this three-year-old. You know, the three-year-old closes his or her eyes and as long as he can't see you, then you don't exist. And essentially that's what Adam's doing, he's in the garden and saying, I don't see God, so he must not be there. Every human heart, the Bible says, knows there's a God. No matter how much they may try to deny it, they know there's a God. And we try to close our eyes and say, because I can't see him, then he must not really be real. And so we hide. We're hiding from God. Again, when God comes to Adam and says, where are you? He's not saying, Adam, I can't find you. He's trying to help Adam to say, Adam, you have no idea where you are. You have no idea who you are. You are completely lost, and our relationship is, is broken. And our relationship is broken with ourselves, verse 10. Adam looks at himself, and he makes this assessment of himself. I'm, I'm naked, and this nakedness result is a, is a sense of guilt and shame. Adam knows something's wrong with himself. He looks at himself, and he says, I'm broken, and I immediately begin to cover that up. I don't want anybody to see who I really am. I want to live in this illusion that everybody thinks that my life is so much better than it actually is. And and if God doesn't graciously intervene into our lives, if he doesn't graciously intervene into Adam's life, we can spend our whole lives living in an illusion. You never know who God is, therefore you never know who you are. And you spend 60 or 70 or 80 years And your life is just an illusion. And in today's society, it just promotes that illusion. Just make everybody on Facebook and Snapchat, make it look like you have a great life. And make sure nobody really understands who you are at the core. Our relationships with each other are broken. We've talked about this already. Adam's willing to throw under the bus anybody in order to save himself. So as he walks back down the aisle from this first wedding ceremony, he throws his wife under the bus and he throws God under the bus. And finally, our relationship with the creation is broken. Look at verse 17. The ground itself is cursed. The creation, when when humanity falls, creation falls. So why do we have hurricanes? Why do we have earthquakes? Genesis chapter 3. When man promoted himself above God, uh, creation fell in that same event. And so what was originally designed as creation to serve mankind, it's now working against us. And no matter how well you plant your crops, no matter how well you plan your day, no matter how well you take care of your body, no no matter how well you do these things to plan for natural disasters, the the nature is working against us. It's no longer working for us or working with us. One commentator has a sort of per- provocative sort of thought to say, you remember in the New Testament how often Jesus had control of nature? So you remember Peter and the disciples, they didn't catch anything, and Jesus says, hey, go back out, put your net down. And I mean, we don't know if Jesus said, hey, fish, just jump in this net. I mean, something happened. They can't, you know. There's too many. That's what it was supposed to be like. Nature serving mankind, not hostility working, not in hostility working against mankind. See, if you don't understand Genesis chapter three, if you don't understand what's truly wrong is inside of you, then then you're never gonna see your need for a savior. G.K. Chesterton, this uh, great. Writer from England uh, responding to a newspaper article. And the newspaper article had a, had a question and at the end of it, what's wrong with the world? And it was inviting editorial comments back. G.K. Chesterton wrote very briefly, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. See, if you don't understand that, If you are here this morning where I have been, and you think, yes, I've got problems, but the real problems are, and you shift it off to something or someone else, you don't understand Genesis chapter 3. You don't understand your own heart, and you're living in an illusion. And so it's a great act of mercy and grace that God would come in and help you see that this morning. Because if you don't, you can live your whole life in an illusion. And God doesn't want that for Adam and Eve. He doesn't want it for us. Now, the curse, verses 14 through 19. Uh, Again, there's so many things that could be said here. So let me just limit myself to just a few uh, comments. Number one, when we think about this curse, think about how the Israelites might have heard this chapter. Uh, If you don't keep God's command, you get thrown out of the garden. You have commands, you're supposed to live by those commands, and if you don't, you could get displaced from the land that God has made. Now, do you hear how they might hear that? We're in the desert, and what are we going to get in the desert? We're going to get the Ten Commandments, we're going to get the law, and what are we on our way to? We're on our way to the Promised Land. So we've got these commandments, and we're going into basically a new garden. And some some scholars would say it's like this uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 being replicated again with Israel. They get a new set of commands. They get a new garden, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're learning right now that if you mess up, you get thrown out. And they mess up, and what happens? They get thrown out. So that's one way just to understand how God's working here. And I just want to plant that seed. I'm not going to come back to that. Uh, I hope it's going to sprout, but uh, I'm not going to come back to it until maybe February. So we'll see that in, when we look at Israel as they enter into the promised land and what happens to them. Second thing to notice here is that there's no question asked of the serpent. See, there's a question asked of Adam. He shifts the blame. Then there's a question asked of Eve. She shifts the blame. But no question asked of the serpent. Just judgment. He just immediately receives this sentence of judgment. And notice that the serpent is cursed, but not Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve live with consequences, but they're not cursed like the serpent is. And I think it's a way of saying that God holds, holds out hope for the evildoer, but he's never going to compromise with evil itself. And the way we would say it is God loves the sinner, but what? He hates the sin. Number three, third observation, verse 16, the woman. I could talk about childbearing, but I, I couldn't talk about it with great uh, understanding. So I skipped down to uh, the other portion of the consequence. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, this statement actually turns out in commentaries, there's quite a bit of um, controversy over what this word desire actually means. And my best guess is that desire should be understanding a a prompting to do evil. And let me just show you it because it's right here, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Remember this conflict between Cain and Abel. And in verse 6, the Lord is talking to Cain and he says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Cain had brought the sacrifice and it wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And he sees this angry, this emotional stirring in Cain, why is your face fallen? If you do what's right, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. And what does it say? Sin's desire is for you. Sin's desire wants to consume you, and, and you've got to rule over it. And so I think that's the idea here is this consequence for the woman is she's, she's designed to be a helper. We saw that in Genesis chapter 2, and now she's going to want to have this domination, this desire that wants to master The husband, instead of being a partner, she wants to be a master of the man. And then the man, his desire would be to rule. And I don't think that means to lead in an appropriate way. I think it means to dominate. So now this two people becoming one, one wants to become the master and the other wants to dominate. And what do you have? You have what is in every marriage, unfortunately, today. That that conflict that constantly happens. You can't get together with your spouse because you both have these agendas that are it's like poison running through your relationship. Derek Kidner says this, the marriage relationship slips into the realm of instinctive urges, passive and active. To love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. Fourth observation here for the man, 17 through 19. His sentence is the longest. Longer than the serpent, longer than the woman, and his is the longest because he's the leader. He's, he's, he's He bears the fullest weight of what has happened here in the garden, not the serpent and not even the woman. He listened to somebody else's advice. He listened to some other voice rather than listening to God's. And like every good parent, God gives a punishment which fits the crime. You know this is a parent. Your, your, your child messes up and you're trying to figure out what can I do that they'll remember not to do this again. You know, go to your room, just doesn't work all the time. So you need some other thing that happens and they go, yes, I want to make sure I don't do that again because this punishment fits the crime. And so Adam ate and he would forever experience painful toil in order to eat. So every time he goes to the tree or goes to the garden and he thinks he's going to pick the fruit and the flies have infested it, duh! it's my fault. I'm remembering thorns and thistles. When, when my day doesn't work out, yeah, it started back in Genesis chapter 3. And so the man's toil would continue until he died and he's going to return back to the dust so much for his divine ambitions. We're going to be like God. Irma Bombeck, only a few of you would remember this name. And mostly I remember her because my mom loved Irma Bombeck. She was a humorist. She wrote newspaper columns, some some very funny books. And she said something like this. You know, my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house, there's dirt, and then there's dirt in the bathroom, dirt on the plates in the kitchen, dirt in the rug. So I work to get rid of the dirt, and by the time I get to the other end of the house, the first end of the house is dirt again. It never ends. And in the end, after all those years of struggling against dirt, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. See, it's exactly what's happening here in Genesis 3. The dirt wins, the dust wins. It's this consequence, these, all these relationships are broken, there's this curse that happens and there's these consequences that happen for everybody. And so this account here in Genesis 3 is this worst storm in human history. And the costs are high, the costs are enormous, and the chapter sort of ends in an ominous tone. The way back to this tree of life, the way to have everlasting life, seems blocked off by this angel, this cherubim, who has this flaming sword that's turning every which way. In other words, there's no way to get back in, and you sort of end the chapter like, is there any hope? Is there any way that we could actually get this thing back together? Could we ever be in a right relationship with God? And thankfully, so so thankful. I'm so thankful for this text because it not it doesn't just leave you with, man, you're messed up. Have a good week. <laughs> There's hope. There's real hope embedded in this curse and consequences. I want to just point out a a couple of them this is where we really begin to see uh Christ in the Bible and that's why I got this title the the genesis of christology christology is the the study of Christ and so the beginning of christology if you want to find Christ in the Bible in the very first place you wouldn't go to Matthew 1 you you go to Genesis chapter 3 and you see it so clearly in a couple of ways verse 21 Adam and Eve try to cover themselves, we know with these fig leaves it 's a way of saying, "I know I have a problem, and I think I can fix my problem. I see that I have a problem there 's a way to fix that problem i 'm going to try to cover myself i 'm going to try to fix myself, but God knows that that God that people can 't make coverings for themselves they 're always going to be inadequate and so god's never going to be able to have a relationship back with us based on what we do even if your life is full of all good works you're never going to be able to get back into a relationship with god because of what you've done you only get back in a relationship with god because of what he's done see see it's a gift it's a gift So God's covenant of works has now shifted to a covenant of grace. It's not about how you get to God. It's about how God's coming to you. And so notice the cost of the covering is vastly more expensive than a fig leaf. Cost of life. It's the beginning of what we see, this substitution. Some life has to to be put to death in order for yours to to live. There, There has to be some shedding of innocent blood. And in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Romans 4.8, Paul says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And they're covered by the innocent blood of the Lamb of God, who is Christ. And so this, this death of this animal begins to be a foreshadow of a the sacrificial system that begins to foreshadow this ultimate sacrifice the Lamb who's going to cover the sins of the world. Genesis chapter 3, 15, maybe the most popular, well-known verse in this whole chapter. Scholars refer to it as the proto-evangelum. You can whip that out, you know, tomorrow at work. It's the first gospel. It's the first place that you see the gospel, this... Uh, let's just read it together. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. And what's going to happen is this seed of the woman, he's going to bruise Satan's head. He's going to crush his head. But in the process, this serpent is going to bite his heel. Somebody's going to be born of the woman. Somebody who can come in who crush the head of the serpent. Somebody who can put to death death. Yet the serpent's going to de- deliver this fatal wound. The seed of the woman is going to have this power to destroy sin. But in the process, he's going to receive a fatal wound and he's going to die. Who does that point to? It's clearly pointing to Christ. Clearly pointing that there is some hope. But that in order to get back in this relationship with God, it's going to be very costly. Imagine if if you and your family are going camping and you're sitting around some sort of campfire. Now, my, my wife's idea of camping is like the Holiday Inn Express, but let's think of a campfire outside, right? So you're outside, you're at this campfire, and you, you see this poisonous snake, you know, this rattlesnake or whatever, this moccasin or or whatever comes into your campfire and it's about ready to bite somebody and and you as the as the leader, you you stamp on it. You, you you're dancing around trying to hit this snake, you're trying to kill this snake, and, and in the process, you actually crush his head, but he's already bitten you, and poison has gone into your bloodstream. So you save your family, but in the process you die. This is exactly what the first Adam should have done. He should have said, I can see my wife. The rest of human history is about ready to be injected with poison, and I'm going to sacrifice my life for hers. But See, Adam's already drowning in a sin. He's letting his whole family go down. In hopes that he can live. Fortunately. There's a second Adam. There's somebody who does have the power. And is willing. To stand in front. Of all the poison that's come into human history. And absorb all this poison. And you. You get all of his righteousness. He drains all of the sin out of you. And you get to stand. Before a holy God. And he looks at you. As if you're. Very good. You're perfect. That's the gospel. The gospel, the sin is your life is given, sacrificed so that I might have life. The gospel is God says my life is sacrificed so that you can have life. I I cannot say it any clearer than that. This is Genesis 3 tells us what's wrong with the world. Genesis 3 tells us what's wrong with our soul. Genesis 3 begins to point us to how to get that back together again. So my my prayer for you is that you would first just examine your heart. Do you have you trusted in Christ? But secondly, have you been able to see sin's consequences? Is there some way we can pray for you because you see this brokenness in in your relationship with God, in your relationship with yourself, in your relationship with others, or your relationship with the world. We'd be happy to pray for you. Would you pray with me now?